Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a powerful legacy and icon of black business ends with the folding of NC Mutual. And as President Joe Biden marks one year in office, we'll count the wins, the losses, and what's next for our divided nation. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. After nearly one and a quarter centuries, an era has ended with the announced closing of NC Mutual, the giant cornerstone of Black Wall Street. It was in 1898 that a barber named John Merrick and his friend, a physician named Aaron Moore, joined with several other black businessmen to found the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company in Durham. Not long after, Charles Spaulding joined Merrick and Moore, and the three would become known as the Triumvirate, building NC Mutual into the lifeblood of the black community in Durham, a backbone of the black middle class, a progenitor of black businesses throughout the nation, and the largest African-American life insurance company in America. Today, we examine the North Carolina Mutual story to understand the vital role of black-owned businesses. I want to welcome Dr. Henry McCoy, Director of Entrepreneurship at North Carolina Central University. Dr. McCoy, thank you so much for being here. You recently published published an article in the assembly titled How the Fall of NC Mutual Hurt Black America. What did you mean by that title? Why did you title it in that way? Well, I think your introduction gives a great example of really just how important NC Mutual was to the black community, um, not only in Durham, but, but nationwide. And the, the title really reflects this idea of, you know, over the last uh, half century or so, what we've seen with black businesses and we've seen the decline of those, we've seen them close, we've seen them shut down. And NC Mutual was such a um, huge force in the community. Uh, I think that it's hard to say that, it, that it's closing does not affect the black community, both directly and indirectly. And so the title really reflected this idea of not really an indictment of NC Mutual, but really the broader society and understanding, you know, how are we letting these black businesses shut down? And you say how we let these black businesses shut down. What do you mean by we let? Who's well, the we? Well, I think we all have some, some role in this. Um, you know, back in the, um, during segregation, black businesses grew to be um, pretty substantial in the community, largely because um, African-Americans didn't have any place else to go. They couldn't go anyplace else. And so these, so really what's known as the golden era of entrepreneurship for, for the black community was really right before the, um, the Great Depression. So uh, what happened after integration is that there was an expectation that there would be two-way street from an economic standpoint. Blacks would go and shop in uh, white establishments. Whites would come and shop in African-American establishments. But that did not happen. Um, largely, it became one-way economics, where black money leaving out of the community, going to the white community. In an ideal world, we would have seen that, that um, um, sharing of prosperity. And so when I say we let, what ended up happening is that after integration, um, the white businesses really said, wait a minute. This, um, this money from the black community, uh, you know, is something that we want. And so they already had advantages from the access to capital and using that to create new products and new services to market to the black community, it really pulled um, the black middle class away from black businesses. And so when I say we, uh, I really think about the idea that we all have to be very conscious about where we spend our money at and making sure that that money is circulating through, you know, all kinds of communities. And in that way, it seems like what you're saying is even though there might have been the naivete back then that 
we that black businesses, black owned businesses would be equally frequented by non-black people. Here we are in 2022 and are we still having the same naivete or is there a different challenge that is facing black owned businesses? Well, part of it is, is just, I mean, this historic discrimination. Um, you know, for example, we saw, um, you know, during the recent uh, recessions that's associated with COVID-19, how, for example, the federal government, when they, uh, you know, instituted recovery and the payroll protection program, how it was dis, um, discriminated against a, a lot of African-American businesses. And so we saw a lot of businesses closed down. We still have, have policies and, and things of that nature that, that hurt the overall community. There was a naivete that there, this would be a two-way street, but I think that it was something that, that you know, a lot of folks had hoped for uh, whenever integration came about. And so I think today what we're seeing is a, is a, a remnant of that. It takes a lot to create a business, to grow a business, to be a successful business. And so a lot of times those things that are most imperative for the community, the black community has had to fight, had to, had, have been discriminated against in order to get those things. And so I think that's what really, um, you know, we're seeing now, we're seeing over time, just more and more African-American businesses shut down. And I think the key with this particular story and looking at North Carolina Mutual Insurance is the idea that um, this is one of the biggest um, black businesses that, that we've ever had for a very long time. NC Mutual really for the 20th century was the largest black owned business in the world. And so how do we let that business from a standpoint of whether it be how the government interacts with it or, or, or provide support or, you know, how we as a community, uh, how, how society itself um, doesn't, you know, look at this as something that we want to make sure lasts and, and that creates this, this ongoing legacy that creates more, more businesses. So, so I mean, it's, it's just been a critical part of the fabric of black America for so long that it's a shame that it's closing. It definitely is. And one of the crippling events for NC Mutual, I don't know how much this is in the narrative and how much it ought to be in the narrative was the case of fraud uh, and misappropriation uh, by an individual who defrauded the company. How important is that to the narrative, do you think? Well, I think it's certainly important in terms of the, 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 the more recent years and the final years. I mean, it's one of those things that's a part of a, a of the challenges that NC Mutual faced over time. And so NC Mutual was already uh, facing these headwinds again, uh, just from the, the way economic integration went one way, um, the black middle class being pulled into the, uh, into the, 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 the consumerism uh, of white America, the way that white Americans didn't uh, reciprocate. This last um, kind of act, this $34 million that were, was essentially defrauded from the company, really was kind of like a nail in the coffin. And, but I, I will say this, uh, if you remember back in uh, the 2008 recession with the housing crisis and things of that nature, there was a whole lot of um, companies, including insurance companies like AIG and others, who made some pretty bad bets um, and, and, and lost tremendous amounts of money. AIG was bailed out to the tune of $150 billion uh, from the U.S. government. Many other um, financial institutions that are white-owned and white-led were bailed out as well. The $34 million that NC Mutual um, was defrauded from in this particular case uh, is really peanuts compared to those larger sums. And so it, it again shows uh, how um, the response to these crises are different um, depending on who's uh, in the, in the, in the um, lead, lead role. It certainly is. And as we reflect on the fall, I think it's so important what you said about uh, pointing out what other companies not black owned, but, but this happens to businesses and there are bailouts and uh, we do the bailout and then we move on. And so, certainly it seems as though NC Mutual could have been helped. 
Yeah, well, I think I think we see that across the board. Again, I, I, I come to most recent uh, in this um, pandemic and the COVID-19 impacts. Um, so many large businesses that are white-owned were able to get access to PPP, um, payroll protection dollars, almost immediately. Uh, and some of those companies even admitted um, very early on that they didn't really need the money, but because it was there, they could get it and it was um, going to be forgivable. They certainly wanted to get that access. Uh, minority businesses, particularly African-American businesses, did not have access to that capital early on, and about 41% of those businesses shut down within the first three months of the pandemic. And so what we have is a continuation of discriminatory policies uh, in the implementation of those. I, I add this, even in the second round of the payroll protection program, which is actually set up specifically to, to address the issue of capital needs for the underrepresented minority businesses, women, African-Americans, and others, even when that, when you study that, those dollars were not put into those businesses as they should have been. And so even when Congress has um, said, hey, this money is specific for this population, um, that money has not um, gone into those um, coffers. And so um, no one can survive um, you know, without access to capital. That's right. And, you know, we have just about one minute left in this segment, but you frequently refer to a report that points to the downward spiral of uh, black America, you know, heading to uh, heading to zero wealth. What could the Biden administration do to help? And I know that that's loaded. But, you know, what can they do for black businesses to help turn that trend around? I will say this. Uh, one of the great things that's come out of the Biden administration is that uh, as part of the infrastructure bill that got passed back in the fall, there was a clause in there for the Minority Business Development Agency, which um, made it a permanent agency. It had to be reauthorized every year. And so it, it not only made it a permanent agency, but it also provided a lot of capital. And we here in the RTP just added a, a Minority Business Development Agency site uh, on the RTP campus. And so I think that is a a way to start. Uh, we need to be building black businesses from the ground up, and, and I think that, um, you know, that is a start, and uh, certainly there could always be more. Thank you so much for your insights, Dr. Henry McCoy. We really appreciate it. Thank you. One year into his presidency and the press has seized on Joe Biden's miserably low approval ratings. According to Pew Research, just 41% of Americans approve of the job President Joe Biden is doing, while 56% disapprove. 538 ran the numbers on several polls and the numbers were consistent. Since this time last year, approval has fallen from 54% of Americans who approved and 35% who did not, to now just 41% of Americans who approve and 53% of Americans who do not. And not a lot of love for Vice President Kamala Harris either. The LA Times reports her poll numbers showed a 38% approval rating and 53% disapproval. How come? Our panel lays it out. I want to welcome journalist Mary C. Curtis of the Equal Time podcast, political analyst Steve Rao, and attorney Harold Eustish of the Forsyth County GOP. So let me start with you, um, Mary. Why are Biden's numbers in the tank? Or are they in the tank? Well, yes and no. I believe that even though we just had reports and we've written it up in a roll call where I write for that we've had a strong uh, economy, 5.7% growth, historically strong. And also we see that the, you know he's gotten the infrastructure bill and the uh, rescue plan passed. But what voters see, the two things right now are one, we're in the midst of this pandemic. And it, after a lot of hope that once we had the vaccine, we would be coming to an end, 
we see these variants come up. We see some of the anti-vaxxing uh, group and disinformation and misinformation, and people feel stuck. They want to be out there. So he's the president, and so he's getting blamed for that. And also, even as I said, though, the economy is starting to come back and the unemployment rate is low, people are looking at inflation. They're going to the stores. They're seeing some empty shelves. They're seeing, despite the fact that folks are getting raises, that inflation is eating some of that up. And even though he's making some strides on the supply chain and helping to boost manufacturing, people are seeing what the effect is. And let's face it, it always is the economy. Well, you mentioned inflation, and I think that that's a biggie here. Uh, Harold, what are your thoughts on those ratings and why? If you look at his, his poll numbers month after month, really it was August of 2021 when they went down. That, that was Afghanistan. I mean, if, if you look at what happened, his numbers took a no, nosedive after Afghanistan. People uh, elected him because, you know, he said he's going to provide this sort of steady leadership, and it hasn't panned out. And it really has kind of been consistent. He hasn't done anything to really improve that. Even if you look at that two-hour press conference um, last week where he had this sort of issue again with, with Russia saying it was an incursion or an invasion. I mean, those sorts of slip-ups don't give the American people confidence. So I think it's, like Ms. Curtis said, I think it's the economy, uh, the, the, the inflation numbers, and, and plus some of his issues on foreign policy as well. Well, that's, that's it, um, I think, was what I was hearing you say, is that even though you have some things that are happening locally, those actions that have impact international, those foreign policy things, Afghanistan, and now recently, Russia, are really influencing people's overall impressions. What do you, how do you respond, Steve? Yeah, well, first of all, um, you know, normalcy. I think when he was sworn in, and Mary Curtis did a great job talking about that, the American people wanted stability, they wanted normalcy, and he got off to a good start. He got the country vaccinated. Today we have 200 million vaccinated, uh, 80 million with boosters. Um, you know, a lot more people vaccinated than when Trump was president, although the vaccine was in its infancy at that point. Um, and then he got the infrastructure bill passed, the $1.95 trillion infrastructure bill. He got the American Rescue Plan passed, and he got some of these good things done. But the fact of the matter is um, he has um, since then lost political capital within his own party. Uh, you know, the, the party is divided, moderates and progressives, which have made it hard for him to get legislation passed like the Voting Rights Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Act, the uh, Build Back Better plan. And um, the variants have changed, you know. So his, you know, normal, you know, he declared a year ago, last July, that we were going to be free from the pandemic. And that set expectations so high. And then in July, that's when we really saw this year his numbers really go down because of Afghanistan, because of these variants. And so uh, the final thing I'll say is foreign policy, which you mentioned. The Biden presidency really hasn't had a clearly defined foreign policy. Uh, you know, we haven't, we still have China. Uh, doing a lot of um, things to endanger democracy. Uh, you talked about Russia. We still have, um, you know, we haven't lifted many of the tariffs that we have here uh, on the from China, and um, and uh, you know the democracy with Ukraine and Russia and democracy in the U.S. So I think what Biden has to do is he has to do a better job of holding more press conferences. Uh, the, the greatest Democratic presidents have been great communicators: John F. Kennedy and Barack Obama. You have the pulpit. You can use that pulpit to tell the American people of the good things that you're doing, 
low unemployment, vaccinating the American people and getting our country back to where it needs to be and fighting inflation. So he needs to communicate better and he's gotten in a lot of trouble and everybody thought that he would for his communication, whether that's something he said or a goof or a gaffe or something. And, and we'll get into it a little bit later about, you know, him, him saying things and making promises all the way along and people holding his feet to the fire. But I do want to get you all's uh, feedback on Kamala's numbers. So much kind of excitement when she uh, first, you know, won the ticket along with Biden. But now Mary, you know, her numbers are low and people are also asking, you know, where is she? We not, we're not seeing Kamala Harris. Well, it's kind of interesting because we all knew she was historic and she was going to be judged differently. First woman vice president, uh, black woman, woman of South Asian descent, daughter of immigrants. And you didn't see reporting this focused on Vice President Mike Pence or Vice President uh, Joe Biden, uh, if you want to talk about it. And she has been going out more, but she's the vice president and she's covered sometimes as though she is the president. And she, too, is her best, uh, you know, she's her best messenger. And she has been out more because yesterday, I believe, just this week, she was in Honduras at the inauguration of the new president, a woman. And it helps that she is going to these countries where immigration problems are starting. And she's doing that work. Did we see it covered? It, she is covered differently. Now, she has some really things that she has to take care of. Her staff was there was some instability with her staffing, and she is trying to get that on board. Uh, so yes, there are some things that she has to take care of, but also I do think she has to be covered in a way that's fair, and she has to be out there. And it's a tightrope because the president, you know, the president, she is the vice president, so she can't really overshadow him, and her job is to implement his policies. Uh, and she has so many tough things on her portfolio, in her portfolio, from voting rights to immigration reform, union relations. So she is, it's only the first year. So yeah. I would say, look and see. Yeah, but and, and we I would knew agree with that you, she Mary. was going to be under the microscope. I agree with you, Mary, that she's covered differently and there's different expectation for a variety of reasons. Here you see this woman in this powerful leadership position. And in some ways, I think that people don't intend to, but they actually have some sort of um, um, first lady expectation of her. Even though she's the vice president, she's not the first lady. And then they, they're putting this hardship on her. But Harold, what are your thoughts about Kamala's performance and about the opinion of her performance? You know, I think I think the way that she's covered, you know, I think it's easy to say because she's a woman and because she's an African American and of Indian American descent. But I, I think part of it is because Biden was sworn in as the oldest president in history. And so I think when people think about her, they think, well, she's one heartbeat away. And so I think there is extra attention on her because of, frankly, the, just the age of, of the president. And I think that gives her that sort of, you know, obviously she's a, she, she looks different than everybody in the position, but the age of the president matters, I think. I also think, I, I think the issues internally in her, uh, in the office of the vice president, really, I think, are being understated. I mean, she has had major issues with all of her staff and, and the things that her staff has said on the way out the door about working for her aren't great. 
I mean, and, and that's unfortunate to hear. And I know that these people that went to work for her were very, very excited, I think, last year to be able to be in the office of the vice president. So there, there's some sort of issue there. I, I don't know, claim to know every detail about it. But um, I, th I think the American people, her approval rating, I think, is separate from the president's. I think people can parse those two things out. Well, I'll, maybe the, maybe a book is coming out and it will be revealed in the future. But but I hear you on that, Steve. What are your thoughts? You know, here she is, um, you know, getting getting these different ratings, getting different comments about her staff and her performance. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, my thoughts are that. Um... When when Barack Obama selected Joe Biden as the vice president, he you know Biden accepted it, saying this we're gonna this is gonna be a full partnership. And in fact, I'm not even gonna call you President Obama. I'm gonna call you Barack. And uh, and it was a good partnership because he gave the vice president at that time real significant responsibilities on a number of issues, uh, particularly foreign policy and and in different things like that, and um, you know veterans issues. So I think Kamala's greatest challenge is she needs more assignments that are visible, that show uh, that she is really doing things um, for the president of the United States. And like Mary Curtis said, that could be covered. You know, one example would be uh, Biden is spending so much time being a senator still, where, or vice president, where he's spending so much time hosting breakfast, going to Capitol Hill, he could delegate that to the vice president and, be, and really be more the commander in chief and saying, you know, my job isn't to spend all of my time in the Senate building where I served for 40 years, but to actually be in the White House. And if you want to do something, you come see me and send the vice president there. So I think he needs to get her in more visible partnership role right. uh, if she is a heartbeat away for the presidency and if she is going to run. Yeah, get her in, get her as that partner, and now see there is an opportunity to deliver on another promise made during the campaign. Should he get to seat a Supreme Court justice, now Supreme Court Justice uh, Stephen Breyer's um, Harold, you got a lot of attention recently with a tweet that you sent out responding to legal correspondent John, uh, Dan Abrams, and you said Biden picking a black woman is great but announcing it ahead of time undermines those judges. I, for one, never wanted to be picked because of race. I wanted to be considered the best, period. Um, what are your thoughts about him having said, I'm going to pick a black woman for Supreme Court justice? Obviously, you, know, I, you don't think that that's going to yeah, bode well for whoever gets I, picked. I, I called my mom about this and, and wanted to get her perspective and say, Mom, what, what, what do you feel as a black woman? You know, how does this make you feel? She, she actually said what I said. She echoed the same thing I said and said, you know, if he, if he would have said, I'm going to go out there and select the best person, I'm going to look at everybody and select the best person, but had in his mind, he's going to pick a black woman. It really gives credence to that pick and, and really boosts that person. But when you say, I'm only going to select a black woman, you, you put that person uh, in, in the position where they're having to, to um, I think, to answer and to, and to sort of take all these all these blows from the media, I, I, I think it's unfortunate because the person he, he is going to pick will be qualified. I mean, they're going to be a fantastic person. I think it's unfortunate for that person. I mean, yeah. everything that we want as black folks in this country is to be treated equally, is to be on an equal playing field, not handpicked because we're black, but we can do anything, you know, on an equal field. And I think that's sort of the, the issue. I think it's unfortunate he's, he made that promise. I hear you. And, I have to uh, Mary, I want to get here, your feedback you know, on this. Well, I have to weigh in here because I do believe that this whole premise of the discussion is incorrect. 
a sense that representation and merit are mutually exclusive. For example, Ronald Reagan, when he was running, said, I'm going to pick a woman for the Supreme Court. And he made that promise. And he did. And nobody felt that Sandra Day O'Connor wasn't qualified, but they just felt that it was time for representation. The fact that there was no woman on, no black woman, meant that there was something not wrong with the pool of candidates, but with the process that only saw white men as qualified. You know, Lyndon Johnson, president, he put the first black woman on the federal bench, Constance Baker Motley. There's a new book out about her. She was outstanding. And she probably should have been considered for the Supreme Court, but wasn't because there was a ceiling placed on that. So I feel that, yes, of the woman he chooses is going to be educated, talented, and yes, qualified. What's wrong isn't the framing. It's the fact that our society doesn't seem, seems to say uh, that representation and merit are mutually exclusive. And let's be clear, Barack Obama never said, I'm going to put a Latina on the court, but he chose Sonia Sotomayor because she was great and qualified. But even then, when he didn't say that, that did not stop conservatives, whites, and others from saying, oh, this is an affirmative action pick. This isn't about merit. So whether or not he would have said this or not, this was going to meet a black woman. And look at the qualifications of all the people on the short list. They're amazing. And when compare them to the people who are already on the court. It's definitely so a great short we, list, but yeah. that, fra th that framing, however, is going to color people's opinion, and that is very unfortunate. That is very unfortunate. I appreciate all your comments. Steve, I wish we could have gotten to you. Steve Rao, Harold Eustish, and Mary C. Curtis, thank you so much for coming out to Black Issues Forum today. Ple pleasure to be here, as always. Mm -hmm. I want to thank today's guests for joining us today. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.